We are back for another week in the world of Sasta and diving straight in today, I recently tweeted about the importance of a sales playbook pre-really scaling out your sales team. And this guest today, he pushed back hard on me for it on Twitter with some very good reasoning. And so I'm delighted to welcome back to the hot seat today a friend in the form of Michael Katz, founder and CEO at MParticle, the customer data platform for brands leading the customer experience revolution with clients from Airbnb to Spotify to Postmates. To date, Michael has raised over $120 million in funding with MParticle from G from Battery Ventures, from Social Capital, from Greylock, from Bain Capital Ventures, and a friend of the show in the form of Zach Coelius. Also, prior to founding Imparticle, Mike was the founder and CEO at Interclick, where he organically grew revenue to over $140 million in just five years. The company went public in 2009 and was acquired by Yahoo in 2012 for $270 million, a 50% premium on the existing share price. But before we dive into the show stage, you ever wonder who's keeping digital services running for companies like Zoom, Netflix, and DoorDash? Do you wonder who helps Peloton keep delivering equipment around the world on time? It's PagerDuty. 58% of the Fortune 100 relies on PagerDuty, and you should too. PagerDuty is the central nervous system for your digital ecosystem. They use automation and machine learning to bring together the right people with the right information so they can address issues and opportunities in minutes and seconds, not hours. That means faster crisis response, fewer incidents, and happier customers. And right now, they're offering a free starter license, which includes unlimited alerting and on-call management for the first six months. Visit pagerduty.com to sign up today. And speaking of the importance of speed there with PagerDuty, hidden costs like time, maintenance, and technical debt can really add up. And that's why you should check out Largy Analytics. Their developer-grade embedded analytics solution make it easy to create branded dashboards and reports that scale within your own application. So stop wasting your dev's time piecing together analytics and let them focus on your core application. Visit largianalytics.com forward slash Sasta for a demo and see what's possible with Largy today. That's enough from me though, and I cannot wait to welcome Michael Katz, founder and CEO at MParticle. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Michael, it is so great to have you on the show today. I always so enjoy our chat. So thank you so much for joining me once again today. Oh man, thanks for having me. Not at all. But before we dive in, I would love to context that a little bit for those that have made the terrible crime of missing our prior episodes. So tell me, how did you make your way into what we both call the wonderful world of SaaS and come to found the incredible MParticle today? Yeah, I mean, we've been at MParticle for the you know, good part of seven, eight years at this point. We've been in market since 2015, though. So we spent the first few years building. And it's the second company that I've founded. And the first one was in the in the ad tech space. I started that company in the mid 2000s. Now, long story short, we built a pretty interesting and innovative data platform that allowed us to ingest first and third party data signals from a variety of sources and systems and distill that to uh, individual anonymous customer profiles and then connect that to our ad server really fast. And by fast in 2009, I meant under an hour or so when the next kind of fastest system was taking about a day to update audience manifests. And so fast forward, we got bought by Yahoo in 2011 for a little under 300 million, stayed there for about a year, saw a bunch of things changing and decided to go and build modern data infrastructure. And so had a few thoughts, toyed with a couple ideas, but then ultimately built what we're still doing today, which is really nice, helping brands unify data from multiple sources and systems to create a unified view of the customer and help them protect their data quality and then make it really easy to integrate into 
all the different systems and tools that they use to run and grow their business. And so, you know, I've been CEO and since inception, and I have a couple other co-founders, including my brother, Andrew, and a guy named Dave Myers, who's our chief operating officer, and recently have taken over the role of CRO or head of sales as well. And it's been quite a ride over the past six months. Can I ask you, I mean, a couple of questions there. Why did you decide to take over that role, one? And then two, I've got a portfolio company now that's kind of at $2 million an hour on, and it's asking itself the question of, do we need a CRO now? And when's the right time to get our CRO? So I guess the question is, first, like, why did you decide now was the right time for you to take over that position? And then second, if advising an early stage company, how would you advise them, given your insight, on the right time to hire? Yeah, I have a, a lot of thought on the second <laughs> one. Yeah, just some quick context. So I took over sales after we reworked the go-to-market teams at the end of Q3 2019. We had grown a bunch, but the market, our market had changed and our go-to-market really needed to change as well. And so we had a good head of sales prior and he helped us grow a bunch. But with all the change needed, we mutually decided that a change in terms of leadership and ownership over the sales team and go-to-market function was needed. And I've always been pretty hands-on with go-to-market, both on sales and marketing. I'm kind of the the annoying founder who wants to evaluate our messaging strategy. So we go through a multi-month exercise and then by the time (laughs) it's already unhappy because it's out of date. So I can't help but meddling. And so I took over sales back at like the end of, of Q3, maybe early Q4, 20. 19 and admittedly was was really nervous. I knew what I didn't like and what didn't work, but that didn't necessarily mean that I knew how to fix really anything. So my problem was I had effectively outsourced the CRO slash head of sales function to someone else since really early on. And I just never spent the time that's ultimately necessary to learn the role first. And so, you know, I think in turn, I effectively failed at outsourcing the role. And I failed a couple times for various reasons. But I think like the biggest mistake I made was not truly trying to understand all of the mechanics first before bringing in someone ultimately better than me to hand it off. Can I ask the question? That's my point with the tweet. And I'm incredibly passionate about this one. I, I totally agree. And I'm like nodding my head going, yep, absolutely. And so like maybe the handoffs didn't work because you had to build the playbook yourself and really see that firsthand experience to build it yourself before you could hand it off successfully, as I'm sure you will do in the next maybe six to 18 months. Do you kind of see that? Well, I do. You know, I think learning what's needed for successful sales execution will also teach you like what you need in a sales leader when the time comes, because there's ultimately lots of different types of sales leaders. There's the deal guy, the relationship guy, the process guy, the spreadsheet guy, the big company, like at scale guy, the scrappy early stage startup guy, the guy from another industry who doesn't get the space, but has a great resume. And it's like, it can be just really dizzying. And it's super easy to choose the wrong type of sales lead if you haven't taken the time to understand what it is that you need, given the specific physics of your business. Can I ask just before we move on, I am interested on the timing element and you're advising my portfolio company here. So this is very helpful. How would you advise early stage founders on the right time to hire a CRO? Yeah. So I think even before you hire a CRO, I think hire a head of sales enablement. And I say this with kind of perfect hindsight, but if your job ultimately is to figure out how do you make this thing predictable and and repeatable and what are the key drivers of what makes the model move, not every founder has the time or the patience to dedicate all of their cycles to doing that. And so 
I think for most, ultimately what you want is somebody who can help create and, and implement a system. It requires systems thinking. And so I think like in lieu of a sales head, you want to take the tribal knowledge that's been accumulated, whether it's founder-led sales motion or there's a couple early sellers or a combination of the two. You want to just start to codify a bunch of that stuff. And in my experience, at least, and we're fortunate enough to have just an incredible head of sales enablement, that person is typically better suited to translate that tribal knowledge into a playbook or into process or into just something more structured than a career sales manager or sales leader. Do you not have to give that head of sales enablement the playbook to run with, though? You said before to me that playbooks are for suckers. And I love that kind of quote. It should be a book, actually, one. Day. But you have to give them the playbook, so to speak. And how do you feel about the playbook for suckers comment? Well, w- what I meant by that is that there's really no such thing as a, as a universal playbook for success. Right? Every company is different. And I would also encourage anybody who's looking for the quote unquote playbook to stop thinking that somebody else has all the answers because they don't. Again, like every company has kind of a unique physics and motion to their business. Are you selling to B2B brands? Or are you selling to B2C brands? Are you up market or down market? Is it an established category or an emerging category? Are you selling to technical or non-technical stakeholders? Is it a land and expand motion? Or are you looking to maximize the economics of the relationship on day one? There's lots of different variables that come into play. So to think that somebody can come in with some sort of a playbook that they've brought from another company, unless all those things line up, you're effectively just guessing. Can I ask, without a playbook, is it possible to have predictability? Because playbooks can largely also determine sales cycles and velocity of contract progression through funnel. What's the relationship between playbook and predictability, do you think? When I think about playbooks, I typically think about tactics. And when I think about predictability, I typically think about systems. And so maybe there's lack of clarity on on nomenclature. But Mm -hmm. if what you're going for is predictability and repeatability, you ultimately want to think about it in terms of a system. So that system also includes input as well as inflows from non-sales employees and resources. Part of the sales system includes product and marketing and product marketing and solutions engineering and sales enablement. When I think about sales playbooks, it's about the things that the sellers need to do specifically. But when the right system is in place, sales almost becomes not quite just about sales. It's about a functioning system that can consume information, disseminate it to the parts of the organization that all contribute to that sales process or sales motion, and ultimately, and over time, produce the desired result. Can I ask, in terms of the systems thinking that, I'd love to kind of dive deeper on that. In terms of the system that you want to build at Imparticle Stay, how do you think about that systems thinking applied to the system that you want to build? And I guess, what have been the core challenges in turning that systems thinking into the working system? Yeah, and if there's anybody out there trying to wrestle with this exact thing, I would say, go back to the Lao Tzu quote, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And what that ultimately means is like, you're not going to fix everything all at once. You have to embrace 
continual improvement. When I took over as sales leader six months or so ago, actually probably like eight months at, at this point, I wanted to first make sure that the daily habits and behaviors are there for monthly and quarterly success. So one thing like that we started doing was tracking everybody's opportunity creation, how much activity is there week over week, and not to force everybody to send a bunch of cold outreach. In fact, like I kind of continue to remind the team, cold outreach should really be the last resort. It's about focusing on how they spend their time, time management every single day to build the required pipe, whether that's like inbound, outbound events, partnerships, referrals, social, it doesn't even matter. It's just about first establishing a system of accountability and showing that leaderboard to the team and the company. And then the next thing that we started to look at was the data. The data matters. And I think too many people underestimate the importance of the data that's going into the CRM. Look, no salesperson likes to have to input data into Salesforce, and and I don't blame them. It's a garbage UI, and it's clunky, but there's also tools like Troops, which makes it easy to import data directly from Slack. And so there's less of a good reason why not to keep good Salesforce hygiene these days. And so when I took over the sales team, what I found was that the information being produced, the information entered into Salesforce was utterly trash. We had six different reasons that we were using to explain why we weren't winning deals and actually zero reasons to attribute to success. And of the six like closed loss reasons, four of them were all saying the same thing. It was that like the deal wasn't qualified, which is just kind of like utterly useless. So we had to look at overhauling the information that we could make available to the rest of the company so that over time, if we see trends or patterns in terms of why we're winning or why we're losing, that information can then get disseminated out to the product team and the marketing team. So we can either fix the things that aren't working or where we have a competitive disadvantage, or we can double down on product and marketing to make sure that we're boxing out any potential competition. Can I dive in and ask that? Sorry, just too interested. You said that about kind of the data enrichment and the importance of it. I think often companies fear that kind of, even if the data is good quality, it kind of goes to Salesforce to die. I guess, how do you take this high quality data now and make it really actionable? And what's that next step in terms of really improving the system with the data? What does that look like? Yeah. So we use the data to create feedback loops. The data needs to be cut a lot of different ways. And so we have an awesome head of sales operations who's great with spreadsheets. And I've worked with him to create like the necessary type of sales analytics. And to your point, the data can go to Salesforce to die, but only if you let it. And unfortunately, we were letting it, which is kind of embarrassing. And First thing was like just cleaning up the data, getting the right type of fields available, redacting a bunch of fields that weren't necessary, cleaning up the close one, close lost reasons, making certain fields mandatory that maybe weren't mandatory and using it to create more effective data exhaust. Because you know the other thing that I'd point out is your sales team isn't just out there to, to close deals. Yes, that's why you hire them but they're having conversations all the time. And you have to look at them as kind of the tentacles from the business. And so if they can go out and they can extract and absorb information back into the business that allows you to make better decisions, or at least make less dumb decisions than you did yesterday, 
that's also extremely valuable. And so we started looking at the data, just started cutting it lots of different ways. We were looking at wins and losses by seller and by buying persona and by market segment and the geos we were in. And we just started to see some really clear trends. You have to de-average the data or else you're not going to get any of the necessary insights. And like, unfortunately, none of this was happening in the past. But when I talk about like the sales, like a system, this is what I mean when I talk about the inflows and the outflows and creating those feedback loops to make sure that you're then strengthening the overall quality of the system. I mean, my word, so many things for me to unpack that. And uh, I love it when we just completely move off schedule. You mentioned kind of a lot of the times in the early days, kind of qualification maybe of deals not being quite there and not being a fit. I see kind of two contrasting types of SDRs. One who's like totally willing to get involved with pipe generation and really actually enjoys that. And another who's much more segmented and specialized and expects leads to be given to them for the specific qualification process. How do you approach like the role of the SDR? And do you prefer them to get involved with pipe generation will be segmented. I look at pipeline generation as it's everybody's problem or everybody's opportunity, right? So it's not just on the SDRs. And in some cases, you know, when you're selling really expensive, highly customizable software, you could even argue that an SDR team isn't necessarily going to be super impactful. Where we see lead generation from and ultimately pipeline creation, you have your inside sales team. We also try to hold our outside sales team accountable to building their their own pipe. But then there's also partnerships and marketing and the executive team and our investors. And you have to look at it not in a way where it doesn't put all eggs in one basket. So I get incredibly excited about that because... You know, the old saying is pipeline kind of cures all. And so the more robust your pipeline is, I think the healthier the business is going to be over time. Totally with you. I, I think, you know, absolutely. It's all about kind of top of funnel. It's like fundraising. I always say the same, all about top of funnel. I do I do have to ask it because often pipe reviews is kind of the core element of any sales meeting. I know you've learned a couple of lessons in terms of the right way to think about and structure a sales meeting. So what's the right way to run a sales meeting? And what have been some learnings for you from the last eight months now? Yeah, so here's what I've seen. Most sales leaders will call together like a weekly or semi-monthly sales team meeting. And yeah, everybody just kind of goes around the room, round robin. Everybody talks about the deals that they're working on. Maybe some people ask some questions and everybody just kind of talks at everybody else. And the problem with that is like everybody just ends up waiting their turn to speak and then nobody else listens. And so you kind of go around the the room or in today's time, you go around like the Zoom conference and nothing gets really accomplished. There's just a bunch of either like reprimanding going on or people kind of patting other folks on the bat for moving deals along, but nobody actually learns anything. It's a total waste of time. And I would say that for any founder, if you see your sales lead not including people outside of the sales team in that weekly or semi-monthly sales meeting, they're doing it wrong because the point of the meeting is not celebration. It's about alignment. And so it has to include everybody that contributes to revenue. It's co-founders and product and engineering leads, marketing, sales enablement, solutions engineering, customer success. And yeah, it makes the meeting a little bit bigger, but it turns it from completely useless to actually 
pretty useful. And so you have to focus on creating a dialogue so that the sales team can get everything that they need in order to be successful, because ultimately that's the spirit of what that meeting should really be about. And that requires key stakeholders from around the organization. Can I ask a potentially stupid and naive question here, but how do you know which stakeholders to bring in when and how often? Because you don't want to bring in, you know, large elements of the product team every week when it may be not necessary. How do you know when and who to bring in? Yeah, you're right. Like you don't need to include the whole product team. I'd say maybe the product lead. Your job as a sales lead, if the product is falling behind, is really, really tough. The best seller and the best sales team in the world trying to sell a garbage product is only going to have so much success. And so when I go back to the point around creating the system and using that data exhaust to ultimately make better decisions on the product side, as well as the marketing side, they need to hear the details of the weekly conversation. They need to be as much part of the conversation as anybody, because in other organizations, that information may be filtered through like a solutions engineering team. And that's probably one of the worst things that you can do, because then you get into a game of telephone. It's all about protecting and improving the integrity of your communication system. Yeah, no, I do totally get you. I, I, I do want to ask it because like talking about bringing in all these different functions and really unifying the team itself. When I had Ben Braverman, CR at Flexboard on the show, he absolutely went on the rails against kind of specialization within sales saying it's not how business is done. No one, especially enterprise clients, want to be handed from SDR to AE to rep to whoever you're handed over to in the sales process. Would you mm-hmm. agree him in terms of sales specialization looks good on paper, but actually it's fundamentally not how you do business? And how do you think about kind of the specialization within your sales process? I think it really depends on the business and you know, how strategic or how transactional the nature of the sales process is. I can speak to our experience, but we have, I don't know, three to six month sales cycles on average. Sometimes it's a little bit less, sometimes it's definitely more. But product capabilities aside, a lot of the times people are still basing the decision on who they want to work with off of who they trust and who they like. And so as you're going through that courtship, say over a six month period of time, if you keep rotating in a cast of characters throughout the sales process, and then the seller immediately rolls off the opportunity, it almost feels disingenuous, right? Because it's like, oh, you actually didn't really care about how I was doing or you know, all those times you checked in, you were just trying to get the deal done. The relationship that gets built during the sales process should absolutely extend for the duration of the customer relationship. And some of our best sellers are really, really good at that. And that's not to say that there shouldn't be a handoff to the customer success team, but you also shouldn't disappear completely. And so there's a balance, I would say. Yeah, no, I agree with that balance. Final one before the quick fire, but I am too intrigued. I had a founder on the show the other day and he said, the danger with customer success teams is if they're so good, they can actually hide flaws in product because they're so good and effective that they make customers happy despite imperfections in the product. What are your thoughts on this? And how do you think about that and kind of the interplay between customer success and product? You know, I think for us, like what we want our customer success team to do, not only to be the voice of the customer, but to solicit as much feedback as humanly possible. 
right? So the good, the bad, the ugly. So if your customer success team is hiding or overcompensating rather for product deficiencies, what that means to me is that there's probably something wrong with how they're engaging. Because I think that if they are going to truly be the voice of the customer, which is to say that they think about value creation before they think about value extraction, you have to solicit as much critical feedback because that's ultimately how you improve. So, you know, I think the premise of the comment cuts a little bit deeper than I think maybe what was said on the surface. Yeah, no, I, I do agree in terms of that deeper nature. I do then, Michael, want to move into my favorite element of the show. As you know, you've been through it before, the quick fire round. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to rock and roll? Let's do this, man. Let's do it. Okay, so your biggest challenge with your role with M-Particle today? Not enough hours in the day or days. What do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started M-Particle? Uh, so much. You know, you asked me this last time I was on the show. I would, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compare. <laughs> I would probably give the, the same answer, which is to say that it'll all work out. Don't stress the highs or the lows too much, right? Try to just stay balanced. I'm working with an incredible CEO coach named Jerry Kalana. His whole thing is like, the point isn't to get better at riding the roller coaster. It's to not ride the roller coaster at all. And that would be my advice. He's the only person that's ever made me cry on the show. So uh, I have very special feelings for Jerry. So I'm thrilled that you're working with him. Tell me though, discounting, should reps do it to get the deal done in COVID times? Yeah, why not? Especially if there's sensitivity on the buyer side. Now, you don't want to do anything stupid. So I would say that as long as it's kind of within the confines of what makes sense, but play the long game. Tell me, how has new inbound pipe been affected by COVID? So what we've seen, and I think there's a lot of other software companies which have experienced the same effect, is that COVID has actually served as an accelerant of digital transformation. And yeah, there's lots of stages of, of digital transformation. And, and typically when we think about digital transformation, it's helping companies go from one to N, not zero to one. So we're not focused on helping companies who have never had a digital presence create a digital presence or move to the cloud or, or anything like that. It's about the optimization of how they're doing business. And so we've actually seen a pretty considerable uptick in the amount of inbound and overall pipe. And it's not just the types of customers that you would think would need to accelerate digital transformation. It's also the types of customers that have been materially negatively impacted by COVID. And they're taking the opportunity because their business is kind of at a standstill right now to implement the necessary infrastructure so that when things kind of do go back to some version of normal, they're able to move faster and be more efficient, right? It becomes more of a necessity and less of a luxury. That's fascinating because I think everyone's saying, hey, segment your customer base, figure out who's struggling, and then essentially have them in the red for churn candidates, definitely. So uh, really interesting to hear that. COVID does change one thing. And sorry, this is off schedule, but I'm intrigued. It's obviously change management, especially with kind of now in-person change and in-person coaching, not being possible. What does great change management mean to you? It's a pretty broad topic. For me, it's about future-proofing, right? It's about making the, the necessary decisions and investments that hold up over time and scale as you scale. So there's a, there's an element of lifecycle management and you can look at it from a product development standpoint, you can look at it from a customer standpoint, but it's ultimately, yeah, it's about being ready for whatever happens in the future because I think the one constant is change. Tell me, if you could change one thing about the world of SaaS, what would it be and why? 
That's a man. That's a tough question. Shorter sales cycles. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I obviously want shorter sales cycles. My investors would love that. My sales team would love that. But making everybody earn it also feels really, really good. You know, I don't know if I would change anything. Like, I truly love it, especially coming from a different industry, coming from ad tech, where you weren't close to the as close to like the economic buyer. And go to market was based on irrational decisions being made at the bottom versus you know people who are, have kind of more more experience and more knowledge in terms of what they want to do with the end product. So, man, I, I love it. I wouldn't change anything. Final one. Who in SaaS do you look up to and admire and why? I admire my team, actually. I've never had like mentors. I've tried to figure as much out on my own. But our team has been through a bunch. And I think that they've shown a ton of resilience. And the fact that we're you know, now in a position where we're accelerating growth and we've battled through a number of growing pains and fought through some pretty competitive environments. Yeah, I can't say enough great things about the team that we have. Um, you know, I, I probably don't say it enough, but I'm truly proud of really everybody on the team. Michael, listen, I was so thrilled when we could make this happen. Thank you so much for joining me again. And this was, as always, so much fun. Absolutely, man. Great to catch up. I have to say, I do just love having Michael on the show. And it's been incredible to see all that he's built in the sales process with MParticle. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes, then you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I really do always love to see you there. But before we leave you today, do you ever wonder who's keeping digital services running for companies like Zoom, Netflix, and DoorDash? Do you wonder who helps Peloton keep delivering equipment around the world on time? It's PagerDuty. 58% of the Fortune 100 relies on PagerDuty, and you should too. PagerDuty is the central nervous system for your digital ecosystem. They use automation and machine learning to bring together the right people with the right information so they can address issues and opportunities in minutes and seconds, not hours. That means faster crisis response, fewer incidents, and happier customers. And right now, they're offering a free starter license, which includes unlimited alerting and on-call management for the first six months. Visit pagerduty.com to sign up today. And speaking of the importance of speed there with PagerDuty, hidden costs like time, maintenance, and technical debt can really add up. And that's why you should check out Largy Analytics. Their developer-grade embedded analytics solution make it easy to create branded dashboards and reports that scale within your own application. So stop wasting your devs' time piecing together analytics and let them focus on your core application. Visit largyanalytics.com forward slash Sasta for a demo and see what's possible with Largy today. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I can't wait to bring you another set of fantastic episodes next week.